0: This podcast is intended as general information only and is not to be relied upon as legal, financial, or professional advice. A professional advisor should be consulted regarding your specific situation. It is also not an offer to sell or purchase EdgePoint investment funds.
1: Welcome to our EdgePoint Equity Commentary Podcast. My name is Juan Gomez, and I'm a partner at EdgePoint. I'm joined today by Andrew Pastor, portfolio manager, Buffett enthusiast, and avid player of both golf and chess. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. So this quarter in your commentary, you touch on a very important topic that doesn't always get a lot of the spotlight, how the team comes across investment ideas that eventually make their way into the portfolios. You mentioned ideas can come from anywhere. Can you walk us through some of those sources? Sure. When we meet with
2: investors, one of the first questions they ask is how we find our ideas. Now, naturally, investors are looking to see a repeatable process. And I think our answer can be surprising to investors who are used to hearing managers talk about using quantitative stock screens to find their ideas. The reality for us is that good ideas can come from anywhere. In some cases, we followed the business for decades. Other ideas come because we attended a conference. We might read an article in the newspaper that inspires an idea, or we could find an idea simply reading in another investing blog. As for the best idea I've ever had, which I opened my commentary with, it actually came on a golf course. Now, I've played many rounds of golf since, and I'm still
1: waiting for my next idea. Well, thank you for your sacrifice, Andrew. Um, Your diligence on the greens has definitely paid dividends for your golf game. So, Andrew, you mentioned that running quantitative screens could be an effective tool to filter the universe of thousands of companies into something more manageable. Can you explain why the team doesn't utilize them? Yeah, it's an important point. Um, Screens do a great job of capturing the past, but they're
2: not as useful when you're trying to identify change. Let's start with how other managers use screens. If you're a deep value investor, you might be running a screen looking for businesses with low multiples of book value or free cash flow. A quality investor would run a screen looking for companies with high returns on capital and stable profit margins or a growth investor would search for companies with above average revenue growth. However, I've never actually found an investment idea from a stock screen. Why? Because we're looking to buy growth for free. The only way to do this is by having a different view of a business than other investors. This often means finding companies whose future will be different, hopefully better than their past. Stock screens by their nature are looking backwards and assume that the past is a good predictor of the future.
1: All right, so if you don't run screens and your source for is unpredictable, then can you walk us through how our investment approach is repeatable? Over the years, we found that our most successful
2: investments have one or more common traits. It's taken decades of investing, and frankly, probably making lots of mistakes, to identify what these patterns are. And these are the kinds of patterns that aren't going to show up on any stock screen. If you were to look at our portfolio at any given time, you're going to notice that all of our ideas share a common set of patterns. So let me walk you through the process. When I come across a new idea, the first thing I do is run it through our list of filters. Is this a great business in a bad industry? Is it a non-obvious growth company? Does it have a granny shot culture? How about a marshmallow management team? The more filters it hits, the more attractive the idea becomes. Essentially, we are using a screen, but instead of using it to find an idea, we use it to determine whether it's worth investing in the business.
1: All right, So speaking of the filters, the first filter you go over is low risk, high uncertainty. The example we provide with Bill Gates dropping out of Harvard to start Microsoft helps put things in perspective. Effectively, the risk was very low, while uncertainty was high. Can you walk us through an example in the portfolios that would fit this pattern? Sure. Um, Investors hate uncertainty and stocks get
2: punished when they have uncertain outcomes. We found that great opportunities can emerge if you can find a business with a combination of low risk and high uncertainty. IENA is a good example of this. When we invested in IENA in 2017, it seemed like a risky investment. IENA owns all of the airports in Spain and the country was in a deep recession. Unemployment had spiked to 26% and domestic passenger traffic had fallen by 30%. Now airports have lots of fixed costs and IENA was only operating at partial capacity. But even if people aren't traveling, you still have to buy insurance, heat and cool the airport and pay for your employees. While the investment appeared scary, what we saw was a business with low risk and high uncertainty. It was a question of when, not if, travel would recover. Iena's business model was actually a lot less risky than other airport operators, as they owned all of their own real estate, they had 46 different locations, so you're not betting on travel to a single destination, and they had already invested in upgrading their infrastructure. The lack of visibility allowed us to buy a Monopoly airport owner at an extraordinary price. At the time of our purchase, it was trading at just over 10
1: times free cash flow. Well, thank you. You make it sound very easy. But let's move to another pattern, one of my favorites, marshmallow management. We've all heard the story about the Stanford University experiment, which showed that children often took immediate gratification, meaning eating one marshmallow now, rather than waiting for a better payoff, waiting 10 minutes for two marshmallows. How does delaying gratification apply to finding good investment ideas?
2: We believe that the stock market at times can resemble an adult version of the marshmallow experiment. Investors overweight the short term, call it the first marshmallow, and undervalue the long term prospects of certain businesses waiting for that second marshmallow. We love it when we find management teams that are willing to defer short term gratification to increase long term business value. Call them the marshmallow managers. Sometimes this means spending years investing in a new product before you generate any revenues. Alternatively, it could be you're building out the infrastructure to enter a new geography. Companies that ignore short term profitability have an edge over those that are trying to please Wall Street. Let me give you an example of an idea that's made its way into our portfolios. At the beginning of the pandemic, many companies slashed costs. Nobody knew how long the pandemic would last, and cost-cutting seemed like the prudent thing to do. Alpha Laval did the opposite. In the previous five years leading up to the pandemic, Alpha Laval had invested heavily into their service, sales, and research and development teams. Because of those significant investments, the company was winning. And when we got to the beginning of the pandemic, management made a critical decision, which is that nobody would lose their job. The investments they had made in people and RD were the foundation for many great opportunities in energy storage, renewable diesel, biotech, the list goes on. Alpha Laval's CEO understood that the time to take market share is after downturns. Sure enough, Orders were up 17% in 2021, and they're entering 2022 with an order backlog that's almost 30% larger than the previous year. Alpha Laval has distanced itself further from its competitors by not taking its eye off the longer-term prize.
1: Thanks, Andrew. Last year's granny shot commentary was one of your most popular ones. It must be all those basketball fans out there. You described Wilt Chamberlain's record-breaking streak, but his one weakness was his inability to efficiently shoot free throws. The best solution would have been to use a granny shot or shooting the ball underhand. But unfortunately, he wasn't willing to be ridiculed and left many points on the table. How does this relate to the culture of a company? Culture is one of the most
2: underappreciated aspects of investing. Just because something's hard to measure doesn't mean it doesn't count a lot. One of the patterns we look for is what I'm going to describe as the granny shot culture. Let me explain this idea by using a business that we've owned for a very long time, Constellation Software. One of the main reasons I chose this business was because of their granny shot culture, doing something highly unconventional and sticking with it. In my commentary, I tell you the story of how I first came across Constellation. My first encounter was actually on a golf course when I met with one of the directors who shared that they're big fans of Warren Buffett. I later read the annual report and noticed that all the executives at Constellation fly economy. And after finishing our research, I emailed the CEO, Mark Leonard, to learn more about the business. He replied saying that we're probably not going to be interested in investing now that the stock had risen to $125. For those who follow the business, The stock today is over 2000. The question is, why was a software company studying Warren Buffett and which technology companies focus on keeping costs down while they're growing rapidly? How many CEOs would tell a potential investor not to look at their company? Each of these questions individually didn't strike me as a reason to invest in the business, but putting them together told the story of an unusual corporate culture. So here's a couple more examples of what makes Constellation a unique granny shot culture. Instead of holding conference calls or providing guidance, they have an annual investor meeting where any investor can come and speak directly with management. They're a serial acquirer, but they don't focus on synergies. And as they've gotten bigger, they continue to focus on doing small things really well how many other 50 billion dollar companies would be interested in pursuing a one or two million dollar acquisition? None of these things would happen at a company with a conventional culture that's worrying about looking different, but they're key parts of what makes Constellation such a great business.
1: Thanks again, Andrew. We're almost at the end of this podcast, but we have time for one last question. Although you mentioned the team has several patterns, in your commentary, you're right about quality upgrades being your favorite type of companies. Could you elaborate more on that? Sure. Quality upgrades are
2: companies that are undergoing a significant change that hasn't yet been recognized by the market. These are businesses on a multi-year journey to improve the quality of the organization. And one thing we've observed is that investors are slow to recognize inflection points people tend to form very strong views about a business and assume that whatever happened in the past is a good predictor of the future. So if a business has lots of momentum, it's gonna continue. If a business is prone to missteps, it's probably gonna keep making them. What this means is that quality upgrades can remain undervalued for a very long time. The beauty of investing in quality upgrades is that there's multiple sources of value creation. When the business gets better, profitability usually follows. And as quality improves, it gets reflected in a higher valuation. And there's also often a third leg of the stool where the better business now has more attractive reinvestment opportunities. So could you share with us some of those different types of quality upgrades? Sure. One category is when the industry or business model improves. For example, a business might go from being capital intensive to capital light. Take Brookfield, it spent many decades investing their own capital, a very capital intensive type of business model. And then over the last decade, they've been building out a highly successful asset management franchise, Capital Light, which is generating significant profitability. Another one of our holdings, Onyx, is following in Brookfield's footsteps and is at a much earlier stage of moving from what I'd call a balance sheet investor to an asset manager. Another common type of quality upgrade is when a great business isn't living up to its true potential and a new leadership team is recruited to transform the business. These companies often have competitors that are generating significantly higher growth and profitability. The new team that's brought in puts in place best practices to narrow the gap or even leapfrog their peers. If you looked at many of our largest investments today. They're at various stages of this kind of transformation: Shiseido, Aramark, Element Fleet, Auto Canada, Uniselect, to name a few. If you're looking for quality upgrades. There's often a catalyst. An acquisition of two competitors leads to a more rational industry. A new management comes in and changes the culture. What we find is that the hardest quality upgrades to spot are where the industry or management doesn't change. And it's in these rare instances where we're betting that an existing management team can learn the lessons from the past this brings me to fairfax a business we hold across our portfolios if you asked any professional investor about fairfax they're going to tell you all the reasons not to own the business trust me it's a long list fairfax's stock price is the same as it was over 20 years ago Many investors have been burned thinking this time is different. Let me tell you a quick story. A few years ago, I had lunch with a Bay Street legend. Noticing that we owned Fairfax in our portfolios, he naturally asked why. I started walking through our thesis about how the insurance businesses had improved. But before I could finish, he blurts out, you bought Fairfax for the insurance business? That's like buying Playboy for the articles. What do we think others are missing? It's our belief that Fairfax has been quietly transforming into a durable growth company. I'm gonna quickly walk through some of the narratives of why people don't own the business and give our insight on why we think the future might be different. The first one, they're very poor underwriters. The truth is, Fairfax has actually generated an underwriting profit, the insurance profitability, in nine of the past 10 years with an average combined ratio of 96%. Other reason not to own Fairfax, they make macro bets. That's actually not true. They stopped making macro bets and have removed and exited all their hedges. Fairfax used to short sell quality companies. They don't do that anymore. They close out their short positions. The investment portfolio is something that bothers a lot of investors because they think that they tend to own a lot of what we call old economy stocks. We actually think Fairfax's equity portfolio is likely going to benefit significantly as we return to a more normal environment. Fairfax doesn't understand anything about technology. Well, Fairfax's largest single equity investment is Digit Insurance, a disruptive fintech company that's growing rapidly and was recently seeded by Sequoia. Oh, and Fairfax doesn't generate enough investment income. If you look at it the other way, we think their portfolio is very conservatively positioned and their large cash and bond portfolio is well positioned and will be a beneficiary of rising interest rates. And the final reason not to own Fairfax, they own BlackBerry. Yes, they still own BlackBerry, but the reality is it is immaterial to the long-term value of the business. The property and casualty insurance industry is in one of the strongest pricing environments in a generation. Fairfax has more than doubled their premiums over the past five years. It's actually a growth stock. In June of 2020, the CEO Prem PremWatsa bought $150 million of stock in the open market, calling the company ridiculously cheap. What did the stock do? It subsequently went down in price. That's how much investors don't like to own Fairfax. Now, management's actually been very shareholder friendly and have been taking aggressive actions lately to close a substantial discount to intrinsic value. They recently completed a billion dollar share repurchase program. And the market has started to take notice of all the improvements. However, at less than one times book value today, we continue to think Fairfax is trading significantly below what the business is worth. As for the legendary investor, If you can avoid the distractions, sometimes the articles are the best part.
1: That's great. Andrew, thank you so much for going through some of the patterns behind how we decide if an idea is investable. Although you make it sound easy, I'm sure seeing these patterns can be quite difficult. That probably means that other investors miss them too. So there's the plus side to that. We always talk about buying growth for free. And the only way to do that is by having an idea about a business that's not widely understood.
2: Yeah, if I could just finish with one thought, Um, I think it's really important to separate the qualities of what makes a great business from some of these patterns or filters that we've been talking about. And so longtime followers of EdgePoint know what we look for in what we call a great business. We want businesses with strong competitive positions, barriers to entry, long-term growth prospects. But this isn't enough. If you want to buy growth for free in the stock market, you need to have an idea about a business that's not widely understood. The filters that we've been discussing are a set of unconventional patterns that can result in great businesses being mispriced. For example, investors naturally avoid uncertainty. They don't like to defer gratification. They prefer the conventional over the unconventional. And they'd rather own companies that are already great instead of ones that are on a journey to get better. The path to finding ideas is not always predictable. We talked about IENA. We found the idea on an investment blog. Alpha Laval was discovered after one of my colleagues was doing a deep dive study on hydrogen. Constellation was found during a game of golf. And Fairfax was the business we followed for decades. But if you only remember one thing from the podcast, it's that while the path to finding ideas might be different each time, the process is always the same.
1: Well, again, thank you so much uh, for joining us today, Andrew. Uh, until next time. Thank you.
0: Information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. This is not an endorsement or recommendation of any security. EdgePoint Investment Group may be buying or selling positions in securities mentioned. No endorsement of any third parties or their advice, opinions, information, products, or services is expressly given or implied by EdgePoint Investment Group. This podcast contains certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking, Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance results, and the actual results or market developments may differ materially from these statements. The whole or any parts of this podcast may not be reproduced, copied, transmitted, or disclosed to third parties without the consent of EdgePoint Investment Group.